from across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. It's a real honor to be here and to be invited to give the inaugural lecture, so I'm very happy about that. Uh, my first involvement with the FOG was the Future Flight Deck Conference that was held here a number of years ago. But I've been a member of the FOG. This is my 11th uh, meeting. So it was back in 2004 that I attended the first meeting and joined the FOG, which was a great opportunity for me. The, the experience, the breadth, um, the commitment to aviation in the FOG has just been amazing and a real privilege to be a part of that team. It's also been a real opportunity to um, participate in the development of some of those documents. And I think that they've been very widely distributed and widely used. So I hope that that's, uh, that continues to be the case, and I hope I can continue to contribute to the FOG documents. Pass the picture. So here's the title of my presentation. Uh, since you know from my background that I focus on the flight deck side of things, most of the material that I will talk about will be from that context. I won't pretend that it's comprehensive. I won't pretend that it is um, going to cover everything. I was asked to be, well, I think the way it was phrased was something like, well, you're going to be controversial, right? Well, I, I may be a little provocative. I don't know about controversial. I'll let you judge that. And the other thing that I'll mention is if you don't ask any questions at the end of the presentation, I may ask you questions. So just consider that a warning or a promise, depending on how you want to look at it. I wanted to start out by talking about some of our successes in aviation in general. And this is a chart that many of you know. It's very familiar. The accident rate for commercial airline operations has decreased to a historic low. We have made huge progress. We need to continue making that progress. But nonetheless, you can see that we, we have made a, a quite an achievement, especially when you consider over the time period how far we have come. It's not just in safety that we have the, uh, the successes. This is a document that was just published yesterday, as a matter of fact, the FAA forecast. And it talks about the growth, the annual percentage of growth. And if you look at some of the numbers, 2015 to 2035, a 4% a year growth is expected. And so that's, that's a success. We continue to grow as a community. And I think that that's important in every, every region of the world. So important to think about that. I'm not going to go into detail about the efficiency aspects. I think some of you are much more qualified to do that than I am. But nonetheless, we continue to grow. Our safety record needs to continue to improve. And so let's talk about some of the challenges and opportunities. And for each of the topics, it is both a challenge and an opportunity. So I'm kind of combining it, because I was trying to decide what to put in the challenge column and what to put in the opportunity column. And I kept getting everything into both. So it, it was really an interesting exercise. First of all, the pressures. Everybody knows about the economic pressures. Security, cybersecurity is turning out to be quite a hot topic right now. 
Um, environmental aspects, I don't need to tell you folks about that. That's increasing in the U.S. as well. The changing workforce demographics, we could spend an entire session just on that. But there's discussions of Generation X and Generation Y and Z and now Alpha that we had the conversation about. And I'll ask Pete Terry to explain that a little later if anybody has questions. Um, I tend to talk more about the, the digital immigrants and the digital natives because I'm a digital immigrant, I will certainly confess. Yes, it's been 35 years, and I don't mind admitting that at all. Happy to be here. I would like to say I started when I was 10, but I'd be lying. But now the current generation, my grandchildren are growing up with iPads, and it, a year and a half old when they can do more with the iPad than I can. It's really kind of discouraging, you know? But I'm sure we all experience some of that. And the airplanes that are being built now are going to be flown by that generation. Societal expectations for safety. I'm going to talk a little bit about this because this is, we're in some respects uh, a consequence of our successes. So I will talk about that. Um, one size doesn't fit all in aviation, and I'll explain that as well. Changes in technology and operations. I'll go into that a bit. The role of the pilot. There's a lot of discussion about that right now with unmanned aircraft, with a move towards autonomy, lots of discussion of different forms of automation. I will definitely have a discussion about that. And increasing amounts and types of operational data. That is a huge topic area that I think is very important and I'd like to discuss it a bit. Note that this is not a comprehensive list. I mean, we only have until 7 o'clock, right? So <laughs> I didn't want to wear your patience out. So let's talk about the first one, and that is um, the one-size-fits-all. In the U.S., this is some of the information about the fatal accident rate for different categories of operations in aircraft. And it's no surprise to anyone, if you look down here, amateur-built has the, the highest accident rate, and that's no surprise. Light sport aircraft, LSA is light sport aircraft, personal aircraft, business aircraft, and so on. When you get up to scheduled 121, you can't even see it on the chart. And part of the message here is not to point fingers at anybody, that's not the intent at all, but to say that we as a society have accepted that there can be different accident rates for different portions of aviation. Doesn't mean we don't want to try and improve it, it just says that they are different, they get treated differently from a regulatory point of view and from other perspectives as well. So if you look back in, say, circa 1945, and again you look at the different from commercial to general aviation, you can see there's um, less demand for safety assurance at the general aviation end and more demand on the commercial end. So if you look at this chart, it shows that as you get more towards the commercial end, especially passengers carrying vehicles, that um, that's a higher expectation of safety. And at this side, we have zero risk, and zero risk means no operations, because obviously if you don't have them, you don't fly. So that's what we would call absolute safety. Obviously, none of us want to go there. But the gap in between is, oops, what society accepts. That was not back in 1945. Things have changed, as you can see on this chart. 
and I can see it's operator error, there's a clicker on the bottom and on the top, so when you hit the pointer, it's an interesting uh, design characteristic. This chart is showing some of the similar things. We've got more categories and type of aircraft and operations now, showing the unmanned aircraft and lots of different categories of general aviation. And then up at the top, again, the scheduled passenger airline operations. Our safety record has increased, and the public demand for safety assurance has increased correspondingly. So it's a consequence of our success. The more successful we are, the more the public expects us to be safe. So the public doesn't tend to look at the accident rate. The public tends to look, at least for commercial operations, at the number of accidents. At least that's been our experience in the United States and the feedback that we get in the FAA. So this gap is getting smaller and smaller as expectations of safety increase. Oh, maybe I need to do that. Darn, when I wanted it to work, it's not working. There we go. Whoops. Um, this, this is a cartoon that goes more with the general aviation side of things. At least that's one way of looking at the perspective. We get told, leave us alone, don't regulate us, we want to go our own way. And the, and the reality is that society has accepted a higher risk for general aviation aircraft. Now that's the airlines. Not completely, but it's intended to just get people to think about the two different perspectives, which we have accepted, again, as a society. Let's look at the accident rate a little bit different way. And this is commercial operations, commercial airline operations. This is accident rate by years following introduction of a generation of aircraft. Some of you may have seen this chart published in both Boeing and Airbus publish a version of this. It says since the years of introduction of a generation of aircraft, so first generation was, for instance, the 707 type of aircraft, Current generation is the fly-by-wire Airbus and Boeing 787 kind of aircraft. So each one of these represents a different generation. And one of the things to note is the current generation is much lower in the accident rate. So we are, again, it's illustrating that as time has gone on, improving accident record. But here's what I want you to notice about this particular chart. I want you to notice the spike in the first few years after introduction of a new generation. When you introduce something that has new technology, there's this spike in the accident rate. That's true for each generation, and the spikes have gone down until the most recent one, which seems to have been a little bit higher. Part of the message that I would like you to get from this is it, it's a representing change. Change can bring risk. And as we're seeing here, there's risk in the transition. It smooths out as time goes on, as we learn. So some of it may be learning curve. But part of the message is change can bring risk, and we need to attend to that to address it properly. So what has changed? Well, the flight decks have changed. All right, I'll go ahead and ask you a question. Who knows what? flight deck that is. Anybody? Mm, 
Whoever gets it right gets a drink afterwards at the reception. A free drink. Modern day. One of the tasks that I did, I used to work at NASA. It's been a number of years ago. But one of the studies that I did is I looked at the amount of information available to the pilot and I compared the DC-10 to the MD-11. The flight decks were comparable in the sense of this looks a lot cleaner than this does when you have the display technology that can make it look so much different. But the truth was that in the MD-11 there was more than twice as much information available to the flight crew. Didn't look like it because you don't see every individual piece of information like you do on the round dials, but nonetheless, that was the case. And I want you to keep that thought for later. New technologies and operations, we're seeing all kinds of things. We're seeing the tilt rotors, we're seeing displays, we're seeing space operations, commercial space. I'm involved in supporting the accident investigation for Spaceship Two, which is proving to be quite interesting. And uh, stay tuned for more information on that. Um, the unmanned aircraft, uh, this is just not even, not even the tip of the iceberg as far as all the different uh, new technologies and operations. But one of the consequences of, of that that we're seeing is an increase in complexity. And one of the things we're seeing, increase in the number and complexity of airspace procedures. We have arrivals, departures, and approaches using performance-based navigation, just showing some of these charts to illustrate uh, some of the new airspace procedures. Some of the challenges for human performance, we have more procedures. Each year, the FAA has seen an increase of 10% in the number of procedures. And we don't tend to get rid of the old ones. Part of the intent was, well, let's get rid of the old ground-based NAVAID-based procedures. Well, it doesn't seem to be quite happening in, in the way that we were expecting or hoping. So pilots have new types of procedures to learn, new phraseology for air traffic communication, more precise routes and constraints, and I'm going to talk about that a little later too. More careful supervision of automated systems is required. Um, more important notes on the charts. The pilots have to pay a lot of attention to the, the details in the charts themselves. How many of you use iPads or equivalent on the flight deck? Uh, quite a few. Well, one of the things that we found is a lot of times pilots don't look at the charts as much. They look at the flight management system. So the notes are important, becoming even more important. We're seeing a variety of chart depictions, more visual clutter. This is just one example. Here's, here's an example, find the runway. So this is an ILS. Pretty easy to find the runway on this one, right? Pretty straightforward. You're used to it. You know exactly where it is. How about that one? Where's the runway? It's a little bit different, isn't it? Not unworkable. Pilots handle it just fine. New skills. How many of you have those nice big flat screen TVs? And the manual would look like this if you printed it out. But you don't print it out. You have it on a CD or something like that. Or you have to go online to get it. And then there's the remotes that you have to use. So new skills new technologies. 
We talked about electronic flight bags and iPads and so on. Those are considered to be disruptive technologies in some respects. They are fundamentally changing the way that pilots deal with information in the flight deck compared to the past. And we could, again, spend the entire time talking about that. But the message is there's new skills, new knowledge, new skills that pilots need to have compared to what we used to ask them to have. This chart is illustrating that point. And it's a notional chart, but back in, say, the 60s, there was a set of knowledge and skills that we considered to be normal, especially a lot of manual flight. And things like flight management systems, when they were introduced, they were considered to be advanced. And so there was the normal set of stuff that the pilots had to know, and then there was the advanced stuff. As time progresses, the things that were advanced are now normal. So advanced is a very relative term. Keep that one in mind. What's advanced now is not what was advanced 10 or 15 years ago. So it's changing. And the set of knowledge and skills that pilots need to have to operate in the modern airspace system has increased, not decreased. There's been um, some discussion about, or I should say a theory that when automation is introduced into the flight deck, that the pilots don't need to know as much. Well, it turns out that quite the opposite is true. There's a lot of discussion about the role of the pilot. And many of you have seen this cartoon and the, the dog in the flight deck. And this represents a perspective that I have actually heard some, some folks talk about, that the pilot is the biggest threat to safety in aviation and we should automate the pilot out of the system or not let them touch anything. So that's one perspective. The other perspective, of course, is the future is gonna look a lot like the current, I mean, with a little, maybe with a little more facial hair, we'll see. But the point is that we still have pilots and we're still relying on them for providing a great deal of safety to the system. So on the one end, we have a school of thought that says the pilot is the biggest threat to safety. The other end, the pilot is the biggest source of safety and we need to design the system around the pilot. And it is becoming more and more polarized. I have been part of discussions lately that are talking about complete autonomy. They, they talk about single pilot operations in air carrier. Um, it's, we're seeing an increasing set of discussions on this subject. And I, I'm finding it a little concerning at some level. This chart is, again, a notional chart. A lot of it depends on where you want to put your risk mitigation. Do you want to put your risk mitigation in the hands of the design engineer? And some of the systems that we can talk about, envelope protection, Cat3 Autoland, which has certainly been around for a long time. Or do you want to put the risk mitigation in the hands of the pilot? And there's advantages and disadvantages to both. But part of what this is showing is if you put more in the hands of the pilot, you have more potential for pilot error. If you put it in the hands of the design engineer, you have more potential for designer error. The other thing to keep in mind is putting it in the hands of the pilot gives you more flexibility and adaptability from an operational perspective. And you're asking the designers to predict what operations will be like for decades because airplanes last an awful long time. So part of the challenge we have to do is how do we make this decision? 
how do we put some risk mitigation in the equipment, which we do want to do. There's advantages to that. Certainly automated systems have provided a lot of improvements. But we also rely on the pilot to mitigate an awful lot of risk in our current operations. So where are we going to go in the future? That's part of our challenge. So it's both a challenge and an opportunity. Some of you may be familiar with the report that came out about a year and a half ago. On um, It's the Flight Deck Automation Working Group report on the operational use of flight path management systems. And one of the first findings that this group documented was that pilots frequently mitigate safety and operational risk. And the aviation system is designed to rely on that mitigation. We have a lot of data about how pilots make mistakes, accident reports. We monitor those sorts of things in LOSA and ASAP reports and so on. We don't do nearly as good a job of documenting how pilots or other humans in the system contribute to making it safe. So we started a list in this, in this document. Pilots adapt to changes in operational circumstances. And Dr. Barbara Holder from Boeing made a good observation about how we have expected variability in the system that we prepare pilots to deal with, but there's the unexpected variability that makes it especially challenging. And we're seeing more and more variability as the system gets more complex. Managing operational threats, weather, many other things. Mitigating or managing errors by the other pilot or by mechanics or air traffic. Mitigating equipment limitations. As a regulator, this is something we talk about explicitly. Managing equipment malfunctions. Our data from LOSA showed that one in five flights has a malfunction of some kind that requires crew operational action. So it's a normal task that they do. Managing unexpected operational risk. Lots of examples of that. Uh, the landing on the Hudson, the Qantas A380 engine failure. It's not a comprehensive list. In fact, it was interesting. I picked up an article just yesterday that I thought was a good example to give for this. Split-second decisions save the day in Perth. And this was an aircraft that was landing and saw a vehicle on the runway that air traffic had forgotten about. And the first officer did a very quick decision, did a go-around, no damage, no accident. It was a save. We don't see enough of this kind of data. We need to start collecting safety data about what creates safety, not, what, not just what goes wrong. We have much more data about what goes wrong than we do about what goes right, and I think we need to get a better understanding of it. So um, the Royal Aeronautical Society had a conference not too long ago that was titled something along the lines of automation, friend or foe. What would your answer to that be? Actually, yeah, that's... And let's be clear, automated systems have provided a huge amount of benefit to the aviation system. That said, there are some vulnerabilities in pilots interacting with the automated systems, and we need to design them. We can't look at just one or the other in isolation. We have to look at the integration of the two and the interaction of the two. That's something else that we need to do a better job at. 
One of the type of errors that we found in this activity that I mentioned, the Flight Deck Automation Working Group Report, was manual handling errors, uh, and that's the title that um, LOSA uses for those type of errors. Over 60% of the accidents that were reviewed by this group, which was not all accidents, but accidents within the scope of the tasking, but over 60% had manual handling errors as a factor in the accident, and that's manual handling errors as defined in the LOSA taxonomy, which means that it's more than just the stick and rudder, and that's a point that I think is absolutely critical to make. There's a lot of talk about pilots losing manual handling skills, manual flight operations skills. We have, in the FAA have started using the phrase manual flight operations because manual handling implies stick and rudder, the motor skills. Manual flight operations are a great deal more than just the stick and rudder skills. It includes those, but it's not just those. There are many cognitive skills that are needed for manual flight operations, and in fact, that's where we see the biggest issues. So if you think about the Asiana accident, let me go back for just a second, um, the Asiana accident, there was a lot of argument about that, having manual flight operation skills as a factor in the accident. Well, it wasn't the stick and rudder skills. It was monitoring. It was visualization for visual approaches. It's decision-making about what actions to take. There's a lot of cognitive aspects of manual flight operations, and we need to get a better handle on that and make sure that we keep our pilots up to speed on those skills. Degradation of manual flight operations, knowledge and skills, though, there has been a lot of talk about automation causing this. Well, it's not automation causing it per se, it's lack of practice. There is no reason in the world why you can't have a highly automated aircraft and also have the opportunities for pilots to practice these manual flight operation skills. That's absolutely possible. Once a certain level of expertise is reached, motor skills don't degrade that fast. So, like riding a bike, it's real easy to get back up to speed on riding a bike. Ditto with the stick and rudder skills. However, the cognitive skills will degrade faster regardless of your level of expertise. If you don't practice it, you will lose those skills. Whether you consider that instrument flying or ability to do a visual approach, or if I set you up on a 20-mile final. Have fun. So it's something to keep in mind, and lots of examples of that. I don't know about many of you. I learned another language when I was a child, haven't used it, haven't practiced it, it's gone. It's like that. There's lots of things that have to be practiced, so we need to make sure we provide the opportunities for the pilots to do that. Next topic, increasing amount and types of operational data. We have types of operational data that we couldn't even dream of 20 years ago. The technology has improved tremendously. However, it is a tidal wave. There's a lot of it, a lot of different types of data. We have the flight data monitoring. We have voluntary reports. We have mandatory reports. We have radar data. We have all kinds of it. Each one has advantages and disadvantages. He didn't discuss it this morning, but Captain Steve Dixon from Delta and I had this conversation uh, yesterday about lots and lots of different sources of data 
each have advantages and disadvantages. You can't use any one source of data to make major decisions. It's the integration that really gives us the power. However, that also gives us the complexity and the challenge of dealing with the data. I always like this one. We are enamored with numbers. Numbers are only as good as what's behind them. So something to keep in mind when we're dealing with all these data is, um, well, keep that in mind. Look for unintended consequences. We are making huge changes to the system. We tend to look at things in stovepipes. We don't always look at how other things get affected. An example I'm going to give you is, is not from aviation. It is the Eastland, and this is a ship that capsized 20 feet from the wharf back in 1915. And here's the situation. After the Titanic accident, there became a requirement to have enough lifeboats for everyone on board. On this particular ship, they loaded the lifeboats the, the ship was already top-heavy. Adding the lifeboats um, just made it that more, much more unstable. There were 844 fatalities in this accident, 20 feet from the wharf. Now, let me give you a modern example where I think the, the law of unintended consequences could bite us if we're not careful. I talked about manual flight operations. I talked about airspace procedures and how they're getting more precise. The more precise the airspace procedures, the more likely it is that the pilot will be required to operate it using the autopilot. It would have to be coupled. The less opportunity there is for manual flight operations. So an unintended consequence of the way we're going with the airspace procedures is less opportunities for pilots to practice those very important skills that are necessary in case they have to revert. So we're having discussions internally to the FAA, and my message to them is, if you don't have to make it that precise, then don't. If you do need it for operational reasons, then sure, go ahead. But don't make it any more precise than is absolutely necessary, because there are other reasons why we want to go with less precise operations. And I could give you a couple other examples. But just the law of unintended consequences bites us a lot. So let's start looking at how all these things play together so we can avoid what we can. But the biggest challenge we have is complacency. I can't tell you how many times I've heard, why should I put in this safety advancement? We're already so safe, we never have accidents. It's, it's not going to happen to us. Well, we are moving forward at a very rapid rate. And I think the last thing we can afford in aviation safety or effective aviation operations is really complacency. So that's the thought, the challenge I wanted to leave you with. I'm not sure if there's an opportunity there. I couldn't think of one. So I'll leave it up to you. And thank you very much. This is my contact information if you would like to uh, reach me about any of this or have any further discussions beyond this evening. And with that, I'll turn it over to you for questions.
from across the globe. From the centre of aerospace. And now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.